Captive of the Centurionis, Chapter 3 It took Diane Corras about two Earth days to decide that she didn't like Ganymede. The Jovians had been very courteous, apologized in a stiff way for the unfortunate misunderstanding aboard ship, and assigned her a brawny young sergeant as guide. Their armament was much more in evidence and much more interesting than Earth's, but granting that spaceships and atomic bombs and guided missiles were more effective than swords and bows and mounted lances, they took all the fun out of war and left nothing to plunder. She missed the brawling mirth of the war camps of Varan among these bleak-faced and endlessly marching men in their drab uniforms. The civilians were almost as depressingly clad and even more orderly and obedient than those of Earth. Only the arrogant, bemedaled officer caste had any touch of dash or glamour about it. The terrestrial concept of sexual equality had been interesting, even exciting in a way, but these Jovians had inverted the natural order of things to a repulsive extent. She had seen the sights, and those were impressive enough. The grim, rocky face of Ganymede, with mighty Jupiter eternally high in the dusky heavens. The bustling, crowded, machine-crammed underground cities, level after level of apartments, farms, factories, shops, barracks. But Earth could show more. Her guide promised to take her to the other moons of the Jovian Confederacy, but she felt as bored by the thought as he seemed to be. She got the impression that she was hurried along from sight to sight and speech to speech, without ever a chance to talk to anyone and find out what really was dreamed and striven for on this land. To be sure, the Jovians all talked endlessly about a superior way of life and their right to return to the green vales of earth, whence their forefathers had been cruelly made to flee. But if they were going to fight, why didn't they just hop in their ships and go there? The director's face seemed to be framed wherever she turned, a small and puffy-eyed man in an elaborate uniform, Martin Wilder the Great, a guide sergeant, one Robert Hammond, said in an odd tone that she might be introduced to the dictator. He looked hurt when she yawned. And what had become of Ray? Hammond knew nothing, and seemed to care less. The secret police officer had said he would be held for a short time as a lesson, and then released, but surely he'd look her up if he were free. She contrasted the earthling's liveliness with the quiet men of Iran, and thought that he would be an ornament to anyone's harem, even if there couldn't be issue between the two species. On the third day she got up, she decided to ask counsel of Orman. She washed, singing a cheerful song of clattering swords and sundering skulls, stowed away a breakfast that was sufficed two humans, and walked into the sitting-room of the apartment assigned her. Hammond was waiting, very straight and correct in his uniform. "'Good day,' he said, bowing from the waist. "'Today we'll go topside again and visit the Devil's Garden. "'Then at eleven-forty-five proceed to Robinsburg, "'where we will lunch until thirteen hundred, and then go on to—' "'I must take an omen first, said Diane. "'I beg your pardon. "'You need not do so. You have done no wrong.' "'Diane prostrated herself before the god, "'then, struck with a sudden thought, gestured at Hammond. "'You too.' "'What?' cried the sergeant. You too. She might be offended if you do not pray. Madam, said Hammond, stiff with indignation, I am a Jovian of the machine age, not a savage groveling before superstition. Diane got up, knocked him to the floor, and rubbed his nose in the carpet before Ermin. 
You're well pleased to grovel, she said urbanely. It is good manners. She laid herself prone again, keeping one hand on the sergeant's head, and repeated several magic formulas. Then she rose to her knees, fished three centaurian dice from her pocketed kilt, and tossed them. Aha! she cried. The omen says, let me see now, I am not a Maya. I think they go to Orishkidan, she bailed deeply before Omen. Thank you, my lady, now come, we go find Orishkidan. You can't, gibbered Hemand. He's doing important work, he's at the academy. Diane strolled out and he trailed futilely in her wake, still protesting. She inquired her way along the many tunnels and corridors and ramps to the academy of science. There were no slideways. Everyone walked. The Jovian leaders, with their concern over physical fitness, insisted that there be as much assorted exercises as possible to compensate for Ganymede's low gravity. To Diane, weight was feathery. She bounded twenty or thirty feet at a time when the crowd thinned enough. The academy, a combined college and technical research institute, had a good-sized sector to itself. There was a broad open space covered with turf, and the uniformed students and professors went from one to another of the doors which opened on the grass. Diane loomed over an undersized academician, who gibbered in answer to her that Dr. Rushkadan was in that sector, and then scuttled away. There was an armed sentry in front of the door. Seeing none elsewhere, Diane concluded shrewdly that he was posted because of the potential military applications of Rushkadan's work. He slanted his rifle across her path. Hold. I must see the Martian, said Diane mildly. Please to let me by. No one sees him without a pass, said the guard. Diane shoved him aside and opened the door. He yelled and grabbed her arm. That was his big mistake. A man, said the Varanian reprovingly, should have a respect for women. She yanked the rifle from him and hit him in the stomach with the butt. He flew across the plaza, reaching, rolled to one elbow and snatched at his sidearm. Diane leaped, landing on his face with a crunch of bone and a small explosion of blood and teeth. She turned back, hefting the rifle appreciatively. The earthlings on Varan had been regrettably stingy about giving modern weapons to the natives. Assorted people, including Hamhand, fled in all directions as he entered the doorway. Down a long hall, peering into the rooms on either side, up a staircase, another sentry before a frosted glass door gaped at her. She smiled reassuringly, moved closer to him, and got her hands on his throat. Shortly thereafter, she had his rifle and revolver. Loud voices drifted through the door, and Diane, who was not at all stupid, listened with interest. One was, yes, that was a Rushkadan himself, bobbling like an indignant tea kettle. I will not, sir. Do you hear me? I will not. And I demand a return passage from this fast satellite at once. Come now, Dr. Rushkadan, be reasonable, was that the voice of Rushkadan Feldkamp. After all, can you complain of your treatment? You have Mars-conditioned quarters, servants, high pay, every consideration. I came here to lecture and complete my mathematical research. Now I find you have arranged no letters for me and expect me to, to supervise an, an engineering project. As if 
as if I were a bear and paralyzed. But, uh, Dr. Rushkiden, after all, science advances by checking its theory against the facts. If, with your help, we create the first faster-than-light ship, it will... It will be a triumphant confirmation of... My theories need no confirmation. They are a development of certain relativity postulates. A piece of pure mathematics and all its elegance and beauty. If they agree or disagree with the facts, that is of no interest to any proper native of Udo. The mathematics is enough. And I will have nothing to do with applied physics. And furthermore, the squeaky voice rose even higher. You want only to military applications? You will stoop me to some vulgarity? You do not appreciate me? I'm going back to Otto. I'm afraid, said the man slowly, that that is impossible. Diane entered. Are they annoying you? she asked. Arishkadan whirled about. The room was thick with the fumes of his pipe, and one of the two Jovians was with him. A bald man in the black uniform of the secret police was holding a handkerchief to his nose. The other one was Ryshevsky Feldkamp, who started to his feet with an oath and grabbed for his revolver. Diane held her own stolen gun on his midriff. Nah, she said. What are you doing here? gasped the officer. Where is Ray Ballantyne? Get out! Guards! Diane took one long leap across the office, seized Ryshevsky Feldkamp by the neck, and hammered his forehead against the deck. Her free hand covered the secret policeman. Where is Ray Ballantyne? she repeated. I'm glad you came, said Ariskadan. Shall we leave this uncivilized place? Two armed soldiers appeared in the doorway. Diane brought her gun around. The silenced weapon hissed. One of the men tumbled with a hole drilled in his forehead. She was rather proud of herself. She'd never had so much chance for target practice. There wasn't much time for self-praise, though. The other man already had his rifle up. Diane dropped behind the desk, and the stream of slugs ripped through the wood after her. She bunched her muscles and threw the desk. There was a crash of splintering wood as it knocked down the Jovian. The secret police officer had his gun out and trained on her. Rishkadan snaked forth a tentacle and pulled him off his feet. Diane stopped to slug Ryshevsky Feldkamp before she got her hands about the policeman's throat. There is a rare ballantine, she growled. Come on, come on, we have to get out of here, wailed the Martian. Which is the way out? I'll show you. Come along, quick. This way. Dan frog-marched the Jovian cop toward a rear door. Booted feet were thudding up the stairs toward the office. Rushkadan held a pistol in each hand, gingerly as if he feared they would blow up. He led the way into a hall and down a long, echoing ramp. Hurry, hurry, he gasped. Sure, Menosa, we have the whole Jovian Confederacy after us. A voice bellowed atop the ramp, and a slug wanged after them. Diane whirled and fired back, using the helplessly pinioned captive as a shield. They retreated slowly, rounding a corner and going on down a long slope to a heavy steel door. Rushkadan opened it, slamming it frantically as they went through. 
They were in a hangar where several small spaceships rested on their rail-mouthed cradles. Mechanics stared at the trio. Quick! snapped the Martian. Teleporter ships! The prisoner opened his mouth. Deanne laid a friendly hand on the back of his neck and squeezed a little. Yes, yes, teleporter ship. Practice maneuvers. Hurry! The man said. I sir, I sir. A lifetime's training in blind obedience spoke there behind the puzzled face. A teardrop-shaped rocket was trundled forth. Deanne looked nervously back at the door. Pursuit was most likely playing it safe, posting men outside while others went around to block all remaining exits. Once that was done, they'd close in. Uh, warm up the engine for you, sir, said one of the mechanics. Feel take it now, said Deanne. But you can't. He'll carbon the tubes. Be likely to crash. I said now. Deanne propelled her captive ahead of her through the airlock and a rush crawled after. The valves clanged shut after them. I hope you can fly one of these things, said Deanne, lashing a secret police to a recall chair. I hope so too, said a rush Deanne stood over her prisoner. Where is Red Ballantyne? she asked. The Earthman who was arrested after Lana a few days ago. I don't know, he gasped. Deanne drew her knife, smiling nastily. Come, Mullen, half, you savage. Outside the city to the north. You'll never make it. You'll kill us all. The cradle rumbled forward to the hangar airlock. Rushkadan took the pilot chair and strapped himself in and lit his pipe with nervous, boneless fingers. Deanne whistled tunelessly between her teeth. It was dark in the airlock chamber as the pumps evacuated it. Why bother with this Ballantine? asked the Martian. What claim has he on us? It will need all our luck and mad genius for us to escape with our own lives. We need his luck too, maybe, said Deanne shortly. The outer valve swung open and they trundled over the rails to the surface of Ganymede. Behind them, the dome covering the city rose against a background of saw-toothed mountains and dark, faintly starlit sky. A dwarfed sun lit the spaceport filled with pale, cold luminance. There were not many vessels in sight. No liner or freighter was in, and the military ports were elsewhere. One lean black patrol ship stood not far off. They've all been out after us soon, said Deanne. What can you do about that boat here, huh? We will see, said Arishkadan. He touched studs, levers, and buttons. The engines thudded, and the little vessel shook. Let's go! The rocket stood in her tail and climbed for the sky. Arishkadan brought her around, the gyros screaming at his clumsy management, and lowered her on her jets directly above the patrol ship. An atom-driven iron blast is not good for a patrol ship. Now, said Deanne as they took off again, you, my policeman friend, will call this camp Mullenhof and tell them to release Ballantyne to us. If you do that, we will set you down somewhere. If not, well... She tested the edge of her knife on his ear. You may still be a police, but you will not be very alive. You can't escape, said the Jovian with a certain hollow lack of conviction. You better throw yourself on the leader's mercy. Diane knocked a few teeth loose. You savage! He gasped. You cruel, murdering. I thought your Jobins were always talking about the glories of war and the reckless Superman, snickered Rishkadan. Also, destiny and things. Better call the camp as she says. A few minutes later, the ship 
lowered into the wild enclosure of Camp Mullenhoff. It was a dreary place, metal barracks, lying harsh under the guns of the watchtowers, space-suited prisoners clumping to work through the thin, chill air of Ganymede. A detail hurried up and shoved an unarmed, suited form into the airlock. Their leader's voice rattled over his helmet radio of the ship's teleceiver. Major, sir, are you sure they want this man in the city now? We just got an alert to look out for a couple of escaped desperados. Diane slammed the outer valve in his face by the remote control lever, and the little ship stood on her tail again and flamed skyward. A somewhat battered Ray Ballantyne crawled out of his suit and blinked at them. It had been a rough two or three days, though they hadn't gone very far with him. The truth drugs must have satisfied them that he was not an intentional spy, and thereafter they had simply held him until orders for his execution should come. He swayed into Diane's arms. Oh, my poor Ray, she murmured. My poor, poor little earthling. Wait a minute, he began weakly. Just lie still. I will take care of you. That's what I'm afraid of. Let me go. They sat down again on a remote mountaintop, gave the policeman a spacesuit, and kicked him out of the ship. He was still wailing about barbarous and inhuman treatment. He said something, too, about wild beasts. And now, said Diane, let us get back to Earth before the Olvians find us. This crate will never make Earth, said Ray. I've flown him. Let me at these controls, Orishkidan. They heard it as well, the ominous sizzling and knocking from the engine room shields, and felt the ship tremble with it. Is that the carbon into man was talking about? asked the Martian innocently. I'm afraid so, Ray shook his head. We'll have to land somewhere before the rockets quit altogether. Then it'll take a week for the radioactivity to get low enough so we can go back there and clean them out. And all the Yovian Army, Navy, Police and Fire Department out chasing us by now, said Diane, her clear brow wrinkled. And all the Yovian Army, Navy, Police and Fire Department are chasing us by now, said Diane, her clear brow wrinkled. I'll fear that Armin is offended because I left her among the heathen back there. I'm afraid our luck is running low. And, said Ray bleakly, how? Oh. 